0: This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. In 1944, the Allies fought their way from the beaches of Normandy towards German soil. Their sights were firmly set on pushing all the way to Hitler's capital, Berlin, and putting an end to World War II. Success in Europe required soldiers with a wide variety of skills. Robert Weiss was a U.S. Army forward observer. His mission was to move ahead of the troops and find targets for the artillery. But being out in front placed him closer to the enemy and at greater risk of being cut off from his comrades. His harrowing experiences were chronicled in his book, Enemy, North, South, East, West. The following is an in-depth interview with Robert Weiss. These are his experiences in his own words.
1: How did you find yourself a lieutenant in the Army?
2: I had gone to uh, Purdue University and was in ROTC there. When the war uh, came along, uh, we were uh, kept in uh, school in the ROTC. Our school schedule was accelerated and we graduated in December of 1942 and were shipped off to uh, Fort Sill for Officer's Candidate School because uh, the acceleration had uh, prohibited uh, summer camp and the Army felt that OCS was a good thing and it probably was. So when <clears throat> uh, upon the completion of that 90 day experience, I was commissioned a second lieutenant.
1: How did you end up in the Artillery in a Forward Observer? Did you know what it was?
2: Uh, well, uh, Purdue was a, a Field Artillery uh, unit. It was a very large ROTC at that time. And I just uh, was automatically destined to be in the Field Artillery because I'd gone to school there. Uh, forward observers, uh, we had very little notion about that although we learned uh, a great deal at Fort Sill and the training there was uh, very excellent, very, very good.
1: What were your first thoughts when they said, okay Bob, you're going to be a forward observer? And he said, you mean I have to be out front?
2: (laughs) Well, you know I probably never thought of it uh, that way because uh, for one thing uh, I didn't have any any knowledge or any experience of what that might, might be. Uh, I know now, for example, from say correspondence that I've had with John Keegan, who's the great military historian in England, uh, whose father was a foreign observer in World War I, that uh, that experience was just uh, being in a, uh, a uh, position that was uh, not mobile. Uh, connected by wire, uh, and sending in information by Morse code. And uh, that was about all anybody knew about, at least uh, I would have known about at that, that time. And things like the portable radio, which made the artillery in World War II totally different than it had ever been before in my judgment, uh, uh, things like that were just just emerging so when I was in school at Purdue uh, we didn't didn't know anything about radios. We had French 75's from World War One and uh, the experience of 105 howitzers that uh, of course was a predominant weapon in World War Two was just unknown to us. Those were things we had to learn.
1: And sometimes it was seat-of-the-pants learning, right?
2: Oh yeah. (laughs) Seat-of-the-pants or elsewhere. (laughs) Sure.
1: So the, the radio was, if you had to single out one thing that made the Forward, Observer, Forward Observer's job different in World War II, it would be the radio? Oh, no
2: question about it, no question about it, because uh, the radios, although they were extremely heavy, uh, the radio weighed about 35 pounds, and then there was a battery, it was you know, this, this big, and a battery pack that was a similar size, uh, approximately the same weight, uh, those were very high quality pieces of equipment and uh, we packed them with us whenever we could and uh, it enabled the forward observer to be up there on the front lines with an infantryman except instead of uh, packing a, an M1 or uh, a BAR or something like that, uh, I had a whole battalion of artillery that I could shoot with. So. Yeah, it was extremely important, and you contrast that with any other war where uh, that capability didn't exist and uh, the artillery was essentially either direct fire, uh, like in the Civil War where they'd roll the guns out and aim them at picket when he was charging or something of that sort, or World War One, where uh, they communicated by wire but from static positions. So we were able to to move with the the infantry, fight with them, and except for uh, not shouldering a rifle, we had uh, our artillery instead, which was pretty lethal. And the infantry loved it.
1: I'll bet. And they knew about it.
2: Well, they knew we were there, and uh, that that always gave them assurance.
1: What was it like landing? I mean, you you were a few days after the original d-day invasion but it must have been early on that you hit the beach well
2: it was in july and uh, <coughs> that um, that was an interesting experience we came from england england on a an lci a landing craft infantry uh as it was designated uh, i was the first one off the boat uh, my w- <coughs> my wife says that uh that shows how foolish i was but <laughs> i uh I was pretty gung-ho, and uh, I remember the, uh, the landing craft, uh, the LCI, had uh, ramps that came down, and uh, they'd been underwater all night as we crossed the channel, so they were wet and slippery. I hadn't taken that into account, and with a full pack on my back, I almost went on my head, but fortunately I recovered and uh, waved everybody else to get off the boat and let's get going.
1: And this was, there wasn't a lot of incoming artillery from uh, the Germans at this point?
2: No, no, not at that point, not at that point. No, we were were many miles, many miles behind the the front lines at that point.
1: Tell me about uh, 314 and when you first went up it, describe that.
2: Well, uh, I'll back up just a little bit uh, the... American forces had fought hedgerow by hedgerow, literally small field by small field, to St. Lowe in Normandy. And then uh, there was the big bombing, which there's a lot of dispute about, and, and the uh, breakthrough. And Bradley, who was in charge, was looking for a breakout. Uh, and uh, at that point, he put Patton into action, the Third Army. Patton went south and west into Brittany, and then started to go east in what could have developed into a large, enveloping movement. Uh, As Patton was starting that, the American, other American forces, the First Army, moved south, and they went as far south as a little town called Mortain, or as the Americans said, uh, Mortain. And Mortain is uh, about 20 miles east of fabled Mont-Saint-Michel. In fact, you can see it from there. And uh, just east of the town of Mortain, there's a very high hill, Hill 314. 314 uh, means that the hill was 314 meters above sea level. Although there's been a lot of dispute about that, the British had maps that said it was 317 meters above, and some of the historians have followed those maps and called Hill 317. And in fact, the current French maps have it at 322 meters. But those, those who were there and all of the records of that event referred to it as Hill 314. The uh, information that we had was that the Germans were in full retreat. Uh, We took over, uh, we the 30th Division took over positions from the the first division, the big red one. And uh, one battalion of the 30th Division of the 120th Infantry Regiment was sent up on Hill 314. It was a high point, a good defensive position. Uh, well above the town, and I was assigned to them as a forward observer. What we didn't know was that the Germans had planned uh, a major counteroffensive uh, with uh, orders that really came directly from Hitler, and uh, there was no turning back for the, the German field marshals on that, and uh, they assembled all the forces they could for what turned out to be the biggest German counterattack in France in World War II, now you have to bear in mind the bulge was larger, but that was not in France; that was in Belgium and Luxembourg. And uh, the attack uh, had as its uh, uh, strategic objective to cut the American forces in two, to drive through to the sea at Mons, near Mount Saint-Michel, and to separate Patton from supply and support. Uh, the battle was a, a pretty extensive battle. Largely, uh, uh, the brunt of that was largely borne by the 30th Infantry Division. But in that battle, this this one battalion uh, was surprised, of course, as the entire division was. was surrounded for six days by the 2nd SS Panzer Division and by uh, another SS. Uh, uh, unit uh, called Comp Group, Group Thick. And um, uh, we awoke the morning after the attack started uh, to find ourselves surrounded with um, only rifles. Uh, a bazooka in our uh, with our infantry uh, company had nine rounds, no anti-tank mines, virtually no medical supplies, no food except what had been left us the night before, and uh, the radio that I had and that uh, another lieutenant had, uh, his radio, however, went out the second day, and from then on, my radio became the only means of communication between that battalion and the forces to the rear and so we uh, sat there for <laughs> six days and uh, uh, I say slugged it out that's perhaps an overstatement but <clears throat> the the infantry stood their ground fired their few rounds of, uh, of uh, bazooka ammunition they had a uh, few mortars um, but one of which didn't work uh, machine gun ammunition was all in the valley to the rear, where the Germans were, and uh, as the infantry commander uh, that I was assigned to and who bore the brunt of the battle uh, later wrote, uh, if it hadn't been for the artillery, why we would have either been uh, captured or destroyed. So that <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> that describes a, a very unusual event.
1: It's sort of amazing that that. Um that you guys held out as long as you did. But from a strategic standpoint, for people who have no clue about mm-hmm. battles and warfare, describe the value of that place, of 314, to the, you know, the reason the Americans wanted to hold it or went up there in the first place, and the reasons the Germans were so insistent on trying to
2: take it. I'll do do the best I can with that. There's some some dispute about about the the value of it but I think it's large has largely been settled. Uh, First of all it was a place from which we had virtually unlimited observation of the Germans and had they in turn occupied that hill uh, they would have uh, uh, certainly forced forced us to do very different different things because they would have had the same observation uh, on on us, except we would have been coming from a different different direction. So it had that kind of uh, tactical and perhaps uh, strategic uh, importance.
1: So you could see. Every, you could, oh,
2: I could see for for miles to the south and to the southeast, uh, as far as it was possible to see. To the east, uh, we didn't have much visibility to the north, but that wasn't a wasn't a problem. And uh, to, the, uh, to the west, uh, to our rear, uh, again it didn't make much difference because within uh, four or five hundred yards there were Germans that had, uh, had surrounded us and immediately behind them there were some palisades, some very high escarpments that uh, came up uh, from the town below so it was it was a very very important place strategically uh what it did in the in the battle i think is is this and there's a book coming out that i believe supports that uh, the germans uh, had essentially lost that battle after two or three days but they continued to pound the hill uh, we were we were under blistering artillery uh, fire tank fire uh, you name it uh for the entire period and uh there seems to be no question that it diverted resources that the Germans otherwise would have used in their attempt to break through to the, the sea uh for example there were very few tanks that they had in reserve that is to uh hold in a position uh, where they could be used to some uh on uh Uh, unannounced event uh, took place. Uh, They had very few tanks in reserve, however we were we were constantly being attacked by tanks and uh, there's no question in my mind that uh, that meant that they diverted tanks from their main objective to Hill 314. I think also uh, Hill 314 uh, was a symbolic thing with with them. Uh, They couldn't believe that a little battalion of 650 men with virtually no weapons could hold out against the 2nd SS Panzer Division, Das Reich, which was one of Hitler's favorite and most seasoned uh, divisions. So there was that element, too, which I think probably enticed them to uh, withdraw forces from other parts of the battle where they might have been used more, more advantageously. Because, you know, realistically they could have just let it uh, evolve into a stalemate uh, and we would have sat on the hill and they would have uh, kept their position around us and they could have used those forces elsewhere. But they didn't, and I think it had a, had a significant uh, effect on their success.
1: Describe first going up there. I mean, did you think, as I interviewed another... Another forward observer, you know, who wasn't in World War II was much later, but he said he's been to Hill 314. And he looked around and he said it was sort of a uh, forward observer's dream position because of the unlimited view it provided of the, of the valley area.
2: Well, that's a, that's a very interesting thing uh, because if you go there today, there is no view. And the reason there's no view is all these little pine trees have, have grown up and obscured the view. Uh, when we were there in 19, August of 1944, we could see for miles and in all directions that uh, were pertinent. And if we hadn't been able to see, there's any question that uh, you and I wouldn't be having this uh, this interview. <clears throat> but one of the interesting things is that um, I have a map that or a copy of a map in color that was sent to me by a woman who did a translation of my book into French. It's a map dated 1909, and it shows that whole area as having <clears throat> having been forested. So you have the peculiar circumstance, 1909 there there are trees there. 1942 it's as if a curtain opened up and you could see, uh, that's 30, 35 years later, and then you push it ahead to uh, 1990 or uh, 2000, uh, the current date, and uh, you can't see again, and it's almost, almost providential. One friend of mine surmises that probably during the Depression, the uh, French farmers cut the trees down for firewood, but for whatever reason, uh, 35 years before, you couldn't see. 35 years afterwards, you couldn't see, but at that time, you could. So it, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, when did you first realize, as the counterattack of the Germans was underway, when, would, when did the realization sink in? So,
2: oh, not until the, the morning. Uh, the uh, We went up on the hill August the 6th. Uh, the counterattack began after midnight uh, but where we were, we knew things were happening and I had uh, called in some artillery fire to protect our position. We knew there was some kind of an attack going on but it wasn't until the following morning that we became aware that we were totally surrounded. And of course that following morning, uh, dawn found us in a fog, a very heavy, dense, Dense fog.
1: And how did you how did you figure out <laughs> that you were surrounded? What what gave that away? When the fog lifted, you could see, or
2: well, how do you how do trying, you know, know how do you know when
1: how, that how do you know when did. you're
2: surrounded? Well. Um, For one thing, uh, H Company, which was our heavy weapons company, uh, was on the south slope of the the hill. Uh, They had been completely overrun by the Germans as they came around the hill. A few stragglers from there came up and joined our uh, people. So we knew uh, at that point, of course, that uh, uh, the Germans were immediately to our south. Uh, The... uh, Companies, one of the companies to our rear, uh, had uh, changed its position because they had been overrun, uh, or at least uh, involved in a heavy firefight during the night, and had to move in closer to E Company where I was, consolidate, get get a tighter defensive line. So we knew that they were at our rear. And, of course, uh, to our front, as soon as that fog lifted, it was pretty obvious because there was wave after wave of infantry and tanks and you name it uh, coming our our way. And, uh, in fact, that first morning, uh, I had an observation post up there, and I was uh, quite humbled uh, as a fledgling at that business to be shot out of that uh, observation post by machine gun fire. So. We knew a lot of things were were happening.
1: Do you remember the first fire mission you called in from up there?
2: Yeah, I remember the first fire mission. It was the night before, actually. It was a a, um, pleasant afternoon and uh, my staff sergeant, uh, John Corn, who was killed there, was was fiddling with a uh, uh, battery commander's telescope, a BC scope, which is a high high power, as I recall, twenty power scope. And he looked through that, and he turned to me and he said, uh, "Lieutenant, uh, would you like to shoot some jerrys?" <laughs> and <clears throat> that was the first. That was the first fire mission. And we shot them, of course.
1: And the next day, when the fog lifted and you could see the Germans, and you called in missions then, obviously.
2: Oh, lots of, lots of them, and uh, as I say, at, uh, at that first observo- observation post, uh, uh, I called in a number of them, then I was shot out of that post, and we had to move to the very high point of the, the hill, and we stayed there for a couple of days or so, and then we moved to a, eventually moved to another observation post. So we, we moved to wherever we had the best visibility or where circumstances demanded that we be.
1: What was it like to spot a target, radio in and then see the shells and see the impact? It must be an interesting sense of power and, and actually <laughs> I mean, some sense of accomplishment when you're able to fire on people who are firing on you.
2: You know, there's certainly a sense of exhilaration that you, that you get from, from that. I suppose it's uh, like somebody who goes to a target range, and if you hit the bullseye, you know, yay. Uh, but uh, as, as events developed, it became uh, very hazardous. Uh, we had 40% casualties up there, which is a very high rate. And uh, so there was a, an air, of <clears throat> air of desperation that also uh, went with the exhilaration, and uh, it was a, a, a great feeling to be to be shooting back and to uh, know that you were destroying an enemy that was bent <clears throat> bent on destroying you. Uh, but it was overshadowed by the the notion that it was life or death.
1: That was the primary thought: get them, or they're going to get a, get us.
2: Well, I think so. Uh, uh, you know, different <clears throat> different people have different different views of death. I, I don't think I ever dwelled much about about my own circumstances that way. But I know other people did, and uh, it was certainly in the air, no question about it. And uh, of course the. Uh, the casualty rate was extremely high and what the infantry commanders did, which was extremely intelligent, was to take the, the bodies uh, each day and put them in a place where they couldn't be seen just just as a way of keeping the morale up because if you're lying there next to uh, somebody you've been, been marching and fighting with and he's suddenly dead, uh, that's going to take a lot out of you. So. Uh, there was all of that plus the fact that uh, we had no food uh, and uh, the medical supplies were uh, virtually non-existent. So if somebody was injured, uh, the medico uh, would, uh, the aid man would come, but there was nothing he could really do. So it had, a <clears throat> had an overlayment of, of uh, uh, desperation, I think is maybe the right word.
1: T- tell me, because not everybody understands the way this works with forward observers and artillery, so you're in an observation post, you're looking out into the valley and you see part of the 2nd Panzer Division, you see mm-hmm. tanks or you see this, What describe the, the whole process for, of one particular or, a, you know, a nor- what, in those circumstances, <laughs> a normal situation.
2: Well, okay. Uh, I'm I'm there. I have my binoculars up. I'm peering away, and I I spot some tanks. Uh, the process there at that time—it's changed, of course, substantially with modern, t- more modern technology. But the process at that time was that I would decide where that that tank unit or that those tanks were on a on a map. Now the maps weren't all that that accurate. They were charts that had, uh, as, as we know from the legends on them, uh, taken from Michelin road maps, uh, so uh, they had to be used with some caution, but I would uh, decide where the, what the coordinates were, so it took some skill to read the terrain and then uh, Related to the map, uh, we would—I would, uh, I would uh, call fire mission. My radio operator would turn the radio on. He would say fire mission, which connected us to our uh, uh, fire direction center, uh, where there were a whole group of people, and we would send the coordinates. Uh, sometimes in code, but in the fast-moving situation, not in code, because you couldn't wait for all of that, and. Uh, the uh, people back there would would plot it. They would figure out what what elevation and what powder charge and uh, uh, what direction uh, what azimuth the uh, guns had to be pointed at in order to hit the target, and they would fire and uh, then I would see smoke out there where the shells had landed. If the shells were had, had gone too far, they were over the target, they were uh, not far enough, they were short, That was the, those were the technical terms, and I would give an adjusting command. So if, for example, uh, I thought the shell hit 200 yards beyond the target, I would say uh, 200 over, uh, 100 left, or something like that, and they would then give a correcting command that would go to the, through the radio the the fire direction center would give commands to the guns and they would shoot again and so a lot of it depended on how accurately I could uh, uh, position the target in the first place because you know once you're out there uh, say you're a German tank and if a shell comes fairly close you're gonna move <laughs> And so speed was, uh, speed and accuracy were essential.
1: Do you remember specific instances of looking through the binoculars and seeing shells you called in land on German tanks or land specifically on German artillery?
2: Well, I I suppose the the most vivid uh, event I I recall is uh, we we had been... Under fire from high explo- uh, from uh, white phosphorus uh, shells, and they're quite terrifying. They're largely used for uh, identifying a, a target or a point by the smoke that comes up from them, but also for incendiary purposes. And when they would explode, these minute particles of white phosphorus came showering down on everybody that was there, and uh, Fortunately, it didn't last very long, and uh, I was sitting there uh, on top of the the hill behind a rock, pondering the situation and it seemed to me that something had to be done and uh, <clears throat> the uh, the finger kind of pointed at me because uh, there wasn't anybody else who could do anything and so I thought through the ramifications of whether or not the <clears throat> Germans could could hit me with artillery fire if they saw me on top of the hill. Obviously, I wasn't gonna stand up and wave at them, but uh, at 1,000 or 1,500 yards, a mile or so with binoculars, they could clearly see me if I was up there, and I concluded that uh, the risk was, was minimal, so I crawled up there, and uh, uh, they started shooting, and I, uh, saw a uh, uh, self-propelled uh, battery of, uh, of guns. And by, by that time, which was several days into it, uh, the uh, topographic features out there were, as far as I was concerned, just numbers on a map. So I could pinpoint them quite accurately. I called in fire mission. And, uh, yeah, we... We knocked out, uh, I think, something like 14 or 16 guns in the course of a few hours uh, by that tactic, and it was very satisfying, and uh, I'm also uh, the opinion that probably it knocked out a great deal of the, uh, the assault weapons, uh, and by that I mean artillery, uh, that the Germans had available uh, to use against us there on the hill.
1: So, are you watching? Oh yeah, I'm through the binoculars, and you can can how describe what you can actually see after you call in a mission.
2: Well, uh, you've looked through through binoculars uh, yourself, of course, and uh, you have a very narrow field of field of view. You see the guns out there that that uh, represent your target or the the tank, and. Uh, there will be a cloud of black smoke that will, will come up. Usually the initial uh, firing uh, took place with one or two guns to conserve ammunition. And uh, if you see the, the target in front of the cloud of smoke, obviously the shell has gone too far. And if uh, it's the other way around, it's, it's short. And uh, so you make an, uh, an adjustment, and when you think you're awfully close, as as I thought we were in many of those those cases, uh, I'd call for fire for effect uh, almost instantly, which meant that the whole battalion of 12-105s would be firing with the shells converging on that, that target uh, all at one time. And so the... the uh, Artillery became very devastating, and uh, we silenced uh, a lot of a lot of artillery weapons and tanks up there.
0: Must
1: have been nice to be able to look through though and see bullseye.
2: Yeah, it it was nice, but you also had to uh, take into account that uh, no matter how charmed you thought your life uh, might be, it wasn't going to last forever. And in that particular instance, after. I'd done all the shooting that I thought it was healthy to, to do, I uh, found a safer position.
1: Well, forward observers are at risk, I would think, at a, to a greater degree than a lot of other people because the enemy knows that without a forward observer, the artillery has no eyes and ears.
2: Yeah, the, the casualty rate of forward observers was very high and uh, during World War II I believe the Germans used uh, radio direction finders so that they could sense uh, where a forward observer was and uh, I know uh, uh, Lieutenant Curley, who was the infantry commander there, uh, felt early on that that was happening. My radio operator was sure that that was happening. And in fact, uh, the antenna, the telescoping antenna on our radio was shot off by an 88. So <laughs> whether that was chance or intentional, I don't know. But it did happen. Well, you
1: had one 88 shell land right next to you, didn't you? Tell me that story.
2: Um. Well I, w- I had, uh, uh, that was very early on in the, uh, in the siege at Mortan, uh, I had sent uh, my entire crew, uh, three men, uh, well two of them I would sent looking for batteries because it was obvious once we were surrounded that uh, the only way we were going to communicate was with our radio and that relied on batteries and we only had two sets and I'd sent them to see if they could find a way back, and then when they hadn't appeared, I'd sent the third man to find them. So I was, uh, I was by myself on, on top of the high point, uh, and uh, an 88 came in, hit, uh, oh, I'm gonna say 20 or 25 feet away from where I was, hit a boulder, uh, knocked a chunk of the boulder off, Chunk about the uh, size of a baseball, or maybe a little bigger. The chunk of the boulder flew over and hit my arm, and uh, but the shell didn't explode, and it ricocheted off and went whistling down into the valley uh, behind us, and exploded down there. And uh, so that, if that's the experience you you have reference to, it uh, we called it Polish ammunition, uh, <laughs> meaning that. Uh, some well-intentioned uh, Polish uh, uh, enslaved worker the, that had been enslaved uh, by the the Germans had uh, uh, armed that that uh, shelled effectively and uh, so you know <laughs> sometimes you're lucky
1: uh, and you you were wearing a special shirt.
2: My father had been a captain in the, the uh, engineer Corps in World War one and he had this beautiful shirt that had been specially tailored for him and uh, his uh, regret I'm sure was that although he was active in France for a long time he never never saw combat and so I wore the wore the shirt <coughs> for a while and it I wore it at at that battle and uh, i I suppose uh, as much as <coughs> as much as anything to uh, uh, Say to uh, <clears throat> say to my father that uh, if at least he hadn't gone to combat, why his shirt did.
1: It, it's those sort of personal totems. Did that mm-hmm. help you through what must have been a horrific time with no food, no water, no I mean, completely surrounded? It wasn't a camping trip. It
2: wasn't a camping trip, and the, the shirt, without doubt, lent support. No question about it.
1: How many days total were you surrounded on the hill? Six days. And were there moments where you thought, this is it, nobody's coming for us?
2: Um, well, I didn't worry about that. I was too busy. In, in the period of time that I was up there, I shot 193 fire missions, which is uh, about one every 45 minutes. And so I didn't didn't worry much about uh, personal personal security. But uh, certainly, that was an issue. and uh, and towards the towards the end, i I uh, felt that due to some misunderstandings in our communication, uh, because we always tried to put on a on a uh, a good face, you know, a brave front, uh, I felt that the people at the rear didn't understand how desperate our situation was. and so i I did send a, uh, a radio message uh, in which I expressed the opinion that if we didn't get reinforcements, uh, we wouldn't be able to hold out. I didn't, st- didn't phrase it negatively that way. I, what I stated was that uh, w- with reinforcements, we could hold out, but uh, the implication was if we didn't get them, why, we're, we're uh, dead or prisoners. And um, that uh, that evoked a response from the division commanders, I found out uh, fifty years later.
1: The, the, the battery situation <laughs> was traumatic. What, what, what bit of improvisation did you guys come up with to extend the battery life?
2: well, my uh, my radio operator, Sergeant uh, Sasser of North Carolina, conceived that that was going to be a real problem right on. It was August, of course, the weather was was quite good. And he immediately began to, we had two sets of batteries, as I said before, and he began to replace the batteries uh, very regularly. And uh, when he'd take a set of batteries out of the battery pack, he would put them in the sun where they would warm. And, uh, you know, if, you've ever tried to start a car engine in cold weather why uh, it's a lot easier if your car has been in the garage or you have a battery heater or something of that sort. So that was done on a regular basis we kept the radio turned off when we weren't, uh, weren't communicating uh, and uh, by some some magical uh, stroke the radio the batteries continued to function up until the, the very end at the very end, as I as I know now, uh, we could uh, uh, send uh, a signal, but we couldn't couldn't receive. And you know, I've often again thought it was very providential because if it had been the other way around, <laughs> the radio would have been worthless.
1: <laughs> it's almost like a Hanukkah miracle—the radios that lasted
3: six days, Yeah, the
2: batteries. Right, last. right. <laughs> yeah, there were there were a number of things that were providential.
1: The, um, the describe. I mean, I guess I just haven't. I just want people to know that that it wasn't, um, you know, you weren't on a camping trip, and that it was sort of twenty four hours of hell for six days in a row, and a constant, you know, work if not worry. Um, and one of the worries was food and water, I guess.
2: Well we had uh, the the first uh, night we were up there, which was before the attack began the infantry delivered uh, by jeep a uh, hot meal to everybody and I think uh, one uh, one k ration or maybe maybe two and uh, as uh, the artillery uh, our people had uh, an extra K ration or two which we'd uh, stored away in our squirreled away in our uh, uh, gas mask carriers, or uh, someplace else. but uh, apart from that uh, we had we had very little very little food. Uh, at first, we didn't have any water, and finally uh, someone uh, found a farmhouse that was right in the middle of the this area. and when I say the hill, you know it's not a not a a pointy pointy hill like a dunce cap, but it was a plateau that was uh... probably a mile uh... mile long and six or eight hundred yards yards wide with a ridge at at each end uh, or at each of the east side and the west side and uh, right in the middle of that was a farmhouse that had been there forever and it's still there and uh... So they'd send send patrols, they'd gather up all the the uh, canteens that they could find, uh, string them together, and uh, fill them up. Nobody much cared whose canteen he got back. We, <clears throat> we weren't worried about foot-and-mouth disease or anything like that. So we did have water after about the second day. Uh, there were, uh, oh, I, I know a man uh, who uh, caught a rabbit, a hare, and... Uh, uh, there were a few chickens, uh, and uh, one day somebody handed me a, a big rutabaga to eat, which I ate, but uh, never again. Uh, it was tasteless, and I'm sure it had no no calories, no nutrition in it. So uh, I think, and I describe in the book that uh, one day five of us shared. This was our total food for the day. We shared one one D ration which is a little little chocolate bar about that big which would normally be a snack for one person and that was our our total food for the day and in having that we had more food than probably most most other men up there
1: it's just it's remarkable that under those circumstances you're able to function effectively and in a, you know, a lethal way because to beat back in and
2: to hold off well uh, there was a, a, a great sense of determination uh, uh, that uh, spread among all the people that were up there and uh, and I think uh, <clears throat> a lot of a lot of that is attributable to the leadership of uh, people like Ralph Curley who was the infantry commander of e company and the other company commanders too uh, uh, Woody and and um, uh, commander of Company K.
1: And forward observers, you think they are appreciated within the military? Because it's uh, in some some cases it seems like they, my sense is they're often overlooked.
2: Well, I, th- I think in my experience in World War II is that, uh, I can't speak for current uh, times, but in World War II the infantry uh, just loved having Uh, the artillery around and sometimes uh, we would be uh, assigned to an infantry unit, I I felt at least, uh, just to make them feel good because it gave them a sense of assurance and you have to remember uh, that there are very few riflemen that actually shot anybody. Uh, Most of the damage was done by artillery or bombing and in some cases uh, or mortar fire and uh, Machine gun fire, perhaps, uh, but uh, the artillery—you uh, know—it told the told the riflemen, "Gee, here are 12, 12 uh, 105 millimeter howitzers or more, because our battalion could, if need be, uh, call call in other other units." Uh, in our division, we had uh, three such battalions, so that's uh, 36 guns plus uh, a battalion of medium. Uh, howitzers, uh, eight inchers as I recall, and uh, uh, that's a lot of firepower if, if need be.
1: Well, when the when the day finally came and the and the battle of that hill was over, that must have been a, a wonderful moment.
2: Well, it was and It wasn't. It, it wasn't uh, <clears throat> one of the reasons it it uh, wasn't was because my my. Uh, uh, Chief of Detail, Sergeant Korn, was killed that morning. And uh, that again was <clears throat> was a circumstance where where I was extremely lucky. He and I were sharing a foxhole, a very shallow foxhole where we sat facing each other with our legs intertwined and I uh, moved from that position to the radio which was 15 yards away maybe, to send in a fire mission. And while I did that, a large shell came in and hit in that foxhole exactly where I'd been sitting. And it uh, virtually blew one of his legs off and he died, late, <clears throat> died later that morning. So there was, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a, you know, a great, great sadness that uh, affected us all because of that. And then I think after six days of that kind of an experience, you're just totally wrung out. And uh, the combination of those things uh, uh, tended to uh, depress any feeling of elation that we might otherwise have had.
1: So a shell came in? What happened? when you, you crawled away to make radio in a fire mission? I crawled
2: crawled up to the to the OP to radio in a fire mission. The OP was just up the, the hill uh, a few yards, and a shell came in. Uh, we don't know from where. Uh, it could have been from the, the rear. It could have been a, a German tank firing. Uh, it could have been friendly fire. Uh, but we've always uh, just uh, made the the best assumption which is that it was enemy fire and the foxhole was uh... Oh, I don't know four feet long maybe and there were two of us in there one sitting at each end and it hit the end where I had been been sitting and uh... I heard the shell from where I was but you know it was just another another shell in the the total number that we'd uh, been hearing all those those days, and then one of the other two uh, men came running up to me, and he said, uh, "Sergeant Corn's been hit." And uh, so he uh, he survived for about three or four hours, but we had no way of uh, no way of treating him. I uh, uh, I used his belt as a as a tourniquet, uh, but that was that was the best we had. And then he died. And then
1: he died. And that uh, and in, in those instances, it's good the battle's going on a little longer, so you don't sit there and ponder the fact that four, five minutes ago.
2: Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Because while I was <clears throat> while I was uh, the, the the two men that were with me were having a very difficult time with this and. Uh, <clears throat> that was a luxury i didn't couldn't couldn't afford, and uh, he was they had moved him meanwhile up to the o p and I was sitting there uh, regularly loosening and then tightening the the belt tourniquet and at the same time, I was sending in fire missions and of course, uh, as I said before, at that point we couldn't couldn't hear anything, but we knew that uh, the fire missions were effective because we could see the shell fire out there. So, it was, uh, the the fire missions were what kept me from dwelling on uh, corn any more than I otherwise would have, although it was uh, a very, very sad event.
1: The, how, what are the sounds like? I mean, was there the raging battle of shells and machine gun fire and snipers? Was at, the, the at, air full of noise?
2: At that time? Oh, it was absolutely deafening, absolutely deafening, yes. What, what kind of sounds? Well, you know, imagine uh, imagine an explosion. I, most people have heard some kind of an explosion and uh, magnify that many times. And it was not only the explosion of shells, but the Germans at that point were in serious retreat. And so there was all the rumble of tanks and uh, other vehicles on the road. And there was a lot of dust out there, I recall the dust rising up off of the road and the glare of the early morning sunlight, because you know we're looking at five, six o'clock in the morning uh, and on into about eight or nine. By noon I think we had been, been relieved, but during that uh, interim period it was still, as far as we knew, the battle was still on
1: machine gun fire, sniper fire? I
2: don't recall any of that at that point, but uh, there was plenty of that uh, during the time that we were up there. Uh, One night, uh, the Germans, uh, not being successful with their tanks and artillery, uh, attacked us from the rear with uh, machine guns and rifle fire, and they just came charging across that field, and uh, it was impossible to direct any artillery fire at them because of the danger of hitting our own men so the riflemen, uh, you know, just fired, fired back and uh, fired as hard as they could at those spots of light in the dark. Uh, one man lying right next to me was hit in the head and uh, died. It could have been me, but it wasn't, fortunately. And uh, the Germans called off their attack and went back because they hadn't been been successful. But... Uh, Again, uh, you know, we had tanks in our positions uh, several times. We had uh, the infantry on that attack, and if they had persisted, I have no doubt they would have overrun the battalion.
1: Is this something you think about every day, or is this something that you sort of put aside and call up now and then? Or is this with you always?
2: Um, Well, I had pretty much put it aside before I wrote the book, (coughs) and... uh, it's <laughs> it's it's only when guys like you talk to me about it that it gets called up. <laughs> but but you, unfortunately that's uh that's a lot of times now.
1: You've been back though. You went back?
2: Yeah, I I went back uh the first time in um uh, in 83 and then I was back in uh, I think 1994 uh, not not for the D-Day uh ceremonies but shortly before that and then in uh, 19 September of 1999 uh, Mortan put on a 55th anniversary celebration of the battle and that was a that was a remarkable thing Uh, this little town of 2,000 people which was virtually obliterated by the battle reconstructed sense, uh, but still a very teeny little place put on this huge celebration that went on all day and well into the night with uh, speeches in the morning uh, downtown and the roads completely blocked, children with flowers and flags and uh, the whole town turned down. Then we went up to the hill and there were speeches in French and then English translations and a few English speeches, and they were translated into French and bands, and, and we had a, a, a van donner which is a, an honor, a, a reception for honorary guests, and <clears throat> that was in a, a central meeting hall in the town, and uh, uh, there was champagne there, and uh, uh, diplomas for the veterans, and there were about 30 of us that were there and then uh, that evening we had to come back for another big dinner and uh... uh that went on with a jazz band until after midnight and after midnight a doctor took us to his home with some friends and we talked till the wee hours of the morning and of course the mortan taxpayers were paying for all of this <laughs> but it was such an outpouring of, of gratitude and and uh, and good feeling, and it <clears throat> encompassed, uh, I think, four generations of of the French, and because um, they have uh, passed that on, you know, f- to their children and grandchildren and great grandchildren, and here are these wee kids that are out there waving their flags and throwing flowers at us, so um, they don't they don't forget.
1: Neither do you.
2: <clears throat> well. It's uh, it's it's wonderful to uh, uh, to be with, with people who have that uh, that sense of of uh, feeling and gratitude and under <coughs> excuse me understanding of what freedom and uh, liberty mean.
1: It's not something given to you; you have to earn it. It's and-
2: it's not given to you, and I think until you've lost it, you don't appreciate it
1: and the French do.
2: Well, certainly <laughs> certainly the people at Mortan do. Yes. I think the French generally are are very very appreciative
1: and you as someone who helped fight for it has a strong feeling I mean, you have a strong feeling for that.
2: Well, I I consider it a, a privilege to uh, to been, been able to uh, <coughs> to participate in that event. Yes.
0: Many lives were lost pushing the German Reich back into the rubble of Berlin. It is to those courageous men that we owe our freedom today. One at so high a cost in the assault on Germany. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Written by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. us.